BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Imagine a place of your own in your name, a place where all your stuff is, where there's a dinner table and a family around it. Virginia Housing makes it possible for thousands across the Commonwealth with our special homeownership programs, including loans, grants, and free classes. Because when we help people buy homes, their communities thrive. Click to learn more about Virginia Housing and see how home helps everyone. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. One plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-patrollable bonus best that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome to episode five of A Pot of Their Own. I am Allison McCaig. I am joined once again this week by Linda Surovich. Hello, Linda. Hello, Allison. And I am also joined this week by Kellyanne Healy, moderator at Amazing Avenue and guest host this week. Hello, Kellyanne. Hello, Allison, and hello, Linda. Thank you for having me. Fantastic. Um, Kellyanne is La Roma Bella on Amazing Avenue, in case you guys don't know. She's moderator. Um, so you've been outed now, Kellyanne. How do you feel about that? <laughs> I, I have mixed feelings about that. I won't lie. Yep. So if you guys are listening, <laughs> don't go some, after her. <laughs> I was going to say, because we've had some uh, incidents the past few days with uh, the breaking of the no politics rule, guys. Come on. Stop doing that. Stop, Stop doing, doing that. that. That's we the have most rules. broken rule by far. <laughs> but Kellyanne is our fantastic ruler and leader, along with Mets fan for decades, whose who's, uh, true identity will never be revealed on this podcast. Nope. Um, anyway, <laughs> we are here this week uh, to talk about all things Mets and to also give a book review for you in the second half of the show. So stay tuned for that. But right now we are going to talk about the Mets catching situation, which is the biggest um, story this week. The Mets, in case you have been living under a rock Mets wise, the Mets have designated Travis Darno for assignment. Um, <laughs> not even a month into the season. Well, a month into the season thereabouts, um, which is somewhat 
you know, surprising, but indicative of the fact that they basically bungled this entire catching situation. Um, Linda wrote an entire piece about it. So, uh, Linda, why don't you summarize for our lovely listeners what how the Mets have screwed this entire thing up? Well, how much time do you have? Because uh, there's a lot going on here. Um, All night if you need it. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start at the beginning with tendering Darnell a contract because it was iffy from the beginning. Um, they decided to tender him a contract instead of Wilmer Flores. Um, but you know what? Even that's fine if you wanted to give him another chance. Okay. I think it ended up costing them around $3.5 million. Like, Okay, I get it. Even though Tim Britton wrote an article saying it takes catchers almost two years to come back. But if you wanted to give him a second chance, fine. But then they compounded the issue by then trading Kevin Ploiecki, who, you know, is no all-star, but at least he's serviceable and healthy. Like, he's not bad for a backup catcher. So they traded him for pitching depth, and that pitching depth is now hurt with no timetable to <laughs> return. And Walter Walker, Walter Lockett. <laughs> um, so then, fine. Uh, you get rid of Plowecki, then you bring in uh, Devin Mazzarocco, who was okay last year. He worked well with Degrom. He had Jake loved him. Had nothing but good said good things to say about him but then and they kind of promised him um a spot on the roster but then they said oh wait no you have to go to the minors he didn't want to go to the minors they refused to release him so he retired instead and then after that went down it turned out darna would not be ready for opening day after all so now they'd had no backup catcher and so then that's how the story of how tomas nito made the opening day roster and now, yeah, and now Tomas Nito is back because they designated Darnell for assignment. And um, Rene Rivera is around, but he's not on the 40 man. So a move would have to be made for him. But, you know, the like I get not wanting to give up on Darnell. He was your prized piece in the R.A. Dickey trade years ago. But you could have had a better plan in place for if he wasn't ready or you could have non-tendered him and then if nobody picked him up you could have signed him on a minor league contract yep it's to me the most like mind-boggling thing about all of this is if you want to like you said linda if you want to tender darno a contract if you still believe in him that's fine um i was firmly on the side of non-tendering but you know there's an argument to be made for both sides um but the, the perplexing thing to me is why would you trade Kevin Ploiecki <laughs> like the, so early? That's the thing. And especially Brody Van Wagenen said, we're, like, we're keeping an eye on the catching situation. Like he knew going in that was going to be a position of need. And now it's still a position of need. Yeah. it's And it's like really- they could have kept both catchers into spring training realized that Darno was probably behind his timeline that you thought he was going to be. Once you realized he wasn't going to be ready for the opening day roster, you could have recouped 75% of his salary if you mm-hmm. had gotten rid of him before a certain point. I forget what the exact date was in spring training, but there's there's a cutoff where if you get rid of him before a certain point, you can recoup most of his salary back. So they could have kept Kevin Plucky and Darno until that point and basically made a decision. Is Darno going to be ready? If no, you can cut him, get his salary back. If yes, then you can trade Kevin Pilecki at that point and probably get roughly the same shitty return that you got. <laughs> like, it's just, it, 
like even though like I, a lot of people online were like, oh, it's not that big deal. It's just a backup catcher. It's like, but this is so emblematic of the way the Mets handle things. <laughs> That's what makes me mad about it. It's like it is the most Mets thing possible. It it really really is. And just to I guess chime in, it, just in terms of positional depth, we have such this year like great positional depth. At like first base, we have Dom Smith and Pete Alonso. Second base, we have Cano and McNeil, who runs ar- around the field like a squirrel. Literally, <laughs> um, I had to throw a squirrel reference in there. I'm sorry, um, but uh, to me, almost every single position um, player has a good amount of depth, and catcher is so obviously glaring in that equation there, and it's very frustrating. It's been this way for years now. Mm-hmm. Like, when was the last time they had an everyday catcher that you were comfortable with? Mike Piazza, maybe? Yeah, Mike. Exactly. I mean, Paul Laduca so, had a good oh, couple yeah, yeah, of years. Yeah. So that was probably the last time, I would say. Okay. But, I forgot about Paul. Sorry, Paul. It's like, yeah. And I mean, I don't know. Like, I don't think, at least I, I didn't predict. I don't want to presume that no one did, but... I didn't predict that Wilson Ramos would look so poorly defensively behind the plate. Like, I I knew that he was not, you know, an elite defensive catcher, but I thought he would be, like, at least, you know, okay. He's been pretty bad. I don't think anyone could have predicted quite how bad he would be. But what we did know before the season started was that he was injury-prone. We knew mm-hmm. that he had a robust injury history. We know that Travis Darno has a robust injury history. So carrying those two as your primary catchers and without much of a contingency plan in place is seems foolhardy to me. And it turns out that it was extremely foolhardy and the Devin Mezzarocco situation is just extremely frustrating because they've like, they, this is not the way that you handle your players. This is not the way that you deal with personnel. Um, They, I mean, of course they didn't like breach his contract he didn't have an opt out, so you know it is what it is. But they basically gave him an under the table promise that he'd be on the team. They told him one of the viable paths for him to make the team was if Travis Darno wasn't ready. Well, it, that's what came to pass, and they still chose Nito over him. And I think it's because they thought that Darno would only be gone for like a week or two, and they wanted the guy who was on the forty man roster already, so they didn't have to burn a forty man spot. But be forthcoming about that to the player, and they were not. And that's the reason they're in the situation they're in now. They screwed up twice. They traded and, their backup catcher, and then they pissed off the other one. And just to, like, build up goodwill, too. Like, you forced a man to retire because you were mad he wouldn't go to the minors? Like, what? Well, how are you else are you going to get free agents to come here if you're going to play hardball with these guys? And he's really done, Mezzarocco, I think. Like, yeah. all the beats have been tweeting, like, don't expect Devin Mezzarocco to be back. He has retired. Yeah, which is really frustrating. Yep. Yeah. Really, yeah. That, that must be a frustrating end to his career as well. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. I can only imagine being him and and sitting around watching this and being like, you know what, Mets? <laughs> oh, I can imagine a few things that are going through his head yeah, right now. Guys. <laughs> oh, and yeah. it's not good. Yep. <laughs> the things that he's saying to his TV are probably similar things that I say to my TV about the Mets on a daily basis. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know I'll what? Say it to them. <laughs> 
Tomas Nito's first at bat was good. <laughs> I'll give him that. He had he had a, a clutch double that added two insurance runs to their win on Sunday, which was pretty legit. But I think you know, and he is a good defensive catcher. So you no. know, sorry, Pete just struck out Ooh. with the runner on oh, second. No, yikes. Um, we are currently in the midst of a of a tie game as we record on uh, Tuesday night, April thirtieth, which is shocking considering Jason Vargas was on the mound and he gave us what I I like to call a Jason Vargas quality start, which is you know five innings, one run. That's that's the best you can hope for. But you know Mets offense is dead again. Apparently, I guess. Mm-hmm. Here we are. Um, so yeah, I mean it's just it's is the backup catcher the most vital person on the roster? No. Is it emblematic of the Mets, the way they've screwed this up so royally? Yes, absolutely. Like, I, I, I'm trying to give Brody Van Wagenen credit for the things he has done well, and he has done several things well. He's built a lot of good things on this team, but this has been his most glaring mistake so far, I would say. And, like, put, having a catcher, a good catcher, can put you, like, miles ahead because not, there aren't that many out there. So having a serviceable one can really help change the whole complexion of your team because, you know, it's not, there aren't that many good quality depth catchers out there for the other teams. Maybe Rayon Mumuto is the top, Grandal, but other than that, it gets pretty thin. Posey, but Posey's not having a yeah. good year. No, yeah. and Posey, do they still put him at first, too? Sometimes, I think? I, I yeah. think so, yeah. Anyway. I feel like it's first... At first base, like, not that long ago. Yeah. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's just, it's just frustrating that... Well, and also what's annoying to me, too, is the Brewers are everything the Mets should have been. They should have gone after Kane. They should have at least asked what the Marlins were asking for Yelich. They should have gone harder after Grandal. They should have signed Gio Gonzalez. Like, just watching that series, it's like, these are could have all been Mets if they had just tried. <laughs> I know. Oh, Lorenzo Kane. <laughs> Like, I remember I wrote a piece for Amazing Avenue during that offseason about how the Mets should sign Lorenzo Cain. And people were, like, hemming and hawing about the fifth year of the contract. And I'm like, literally, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> literally, who cares? And, like, they're like, oh, center fielder's skill set. It's going to decline. When he robbed that home run from Todd oh. Frazier, didn't quite look like it was declining very much, don't you think? <laughs> Oh, that was so frustrating. I'm pretty sure he killed them the whole series. Yeah, he well, he did, I think. Yeah, he, he, did. he felt like he did. And he was yeah, struggling him, he going in, cold. too. The whole Brewers offense was struggling going in, as was the Reds offense. You know, the uh -huh. Mets are extraordinary at fixing other teams, <laughs> making yep. other teams who were struggling look good. Yep. We're yeah. the cure for what ails you. Yep, we are the cure for what ails you, especially given our um, pitching situation right now, which is the other topic for discussion. Um, you know, obviously Vargas was okay tonight and gave us a Jason Vargas quality start. Mats has been pretty good. He's actually been the ace of the staff. <laughs> Go figure. Wheeler's been, you know, hit or miss more or less. Like he's been good some days and not so good other days. <laughs> Jacob DeCrom and Noah Syndergaard have been, you know, not just mediocre, straight up bad. And it's... It's, you know, a problem like and it's not it's part of a general trend across the league that is not unique to them. There are aces on other teams that are struggling in a, in a similar way. And it's like it makes you wonder what what's wrong. Is it are these with Syndergaard and DeGrom? Are they mechanical problems or is it something to do with the baseball? <laughs> 
Hmm. Hmm. And well, you know. you, was it Noah who said it like after his last start? He said it felt like ice cubes, or he said the ball was slippery or something, and which is what Justin Verlander said when he thought the balls were different too. So it seems like this isn't the ball they're used to throwing. Yep, that's that's what yeah, Syndergaard, that was Syndergaard, and he said after his last start, every time he gets handed a new baseball, it feels like an ice cube, meaning it's slippery. He can't get a grip on it. And it was funny, actually, this kind of flew under the radar. I'm surprised it didn't get more like press among the beat writers. Maybe it was just in Philly's world that this got a lot of press. During the Phillies series when Syndergaard was pitching, um, the like Phillies like accused him of um, doctoring the baseball. Um they said they saw like a substance that he like was apparently using. And when they asked Syndergaard about it, he said, if I was doctoring the baseball, you'd think I'd still be throwing crappy 86 mile an hour sliders. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I mean, you know, well, can't, can't really roll. argue. <laughs> like, but like, you know, it also makes you wonder like, okay, yeah, Jake and Syndergaard are struggling, but for someone like Vargas, if there's something weird with the ball, like we are, we all like to make fun of Vargas and hate on Vargas, but it, like for someone who relies on feel, that's really got to be hard for him. Mm. Yeah, um, and like I don't know, I have this theory that about this that I'm currently research in the process of researching and writing about for Amazing Avenue, and I'm going to try to put an article out this week about it. Um, I have this theory that I think the juiced balls i mean okay i keep calling them juiced balls like it's a foregone conclusion it's not we have data to indicate that the balls are different this year based on home run rates and um drag coefficients but we don't actually have conclusive evidence that the balls are different because we haven't actually looked at the baseballs so keep an eye on that out for that um our previous guest dr meredith wills will look into it she has told us so and she's looking for baseballs so psa um, give her baseballs so that she can do the science. Um, but, you know, trends are showing that the ball seems more like the 2017 version of the ball. Um, and I have this theory that I'm currently looking into that guys that are reliant on hard sliders and nasty um, off-speed stuff are going to be more affected by these different baseballs, by these slipperier baseballs. Guys like Josh Hader, for example, who we just saw in the Brewers series, an elite relief pitcher who relies mostly on his elite fastball, is not going to be as affected. And, you know, we saw he wasn't very affected at all. No! Um, And Steven Matz... It fits with Steven Matz being the most effective starting pitcher on the Mets staff this year because Steven Matz has reduced his slider usage considerably. All of the Mets are heavily reliant on that Warthin slider that they were all taught. Um, that's a big part of their success. Steven Matz abandoned it for the most part because he was having issues with his health and throwing the hard slider was harder on his elbow. So he cut down on his slider usage. And I think that because he throws fewer sliders than the rest of the Mets staff, that's why he's been the most effective Mets pitcher this year. It To me, it, it makes total sense. And it explains a lot of Jerry's Familia's struggles, too. If it's really the baseball and it's really sliders that are primarily affected, Jerry's Familia relies a lot on his slider. So that's just the theory that I'm testing out right now. Walks are up across the league as well. Hit-by-pitches are up. Um, you know, we've seen it already. So many hit-by-pitches, so many walks. Pitchers are struggling so much to control their stuff, especially their off-speed stuff. Sliders are getting massacred 
across the league. They're getting hit very, very hard league-wide. So this is just these are just trends. There's I have no conclusive evidence to draw serious conclusions. I can't say for certain that's the problem. And even if it is part of it, it's probably not the whole thing. It's probably only part of it. But I think it I think there's something there. Oh yeah, yeah, I think so too. Like if it was just a couple pitchers struggling, okay. But since it's everyone, like come on. The 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 evidence is there. Yeah, like, you mean to tell me that Aaron Noah, Noah Syndergaard, Jacob deGrom, Corey Kluber, Chris Sale, uh, Max Scherzer, all of these guys just forgot how to pitch at once? <laughs> I mean, it's possible. <laughs> Maybe it's like the, oh, it's our own space jam. The Monstars all took their talent. <laughs> There's some planet somewhere that took their talent. Could be. Could be. Pitcher's talent is being sucked out of them, <laughs> and it's because of slippery baseballs and monsters <laughs> combination. Um, so that is our um, our general Mets segment for this week. Um, when we get back, um, we will go into our baseball segment, and we have a really cool um, book review this week, which is why um, Kellyanne is here. So stay tuned. When we get back, we'll talk about infinite baseball with Kellyanne. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Imagine. A place of your own, in your name. A place where all your stuff is. Where there's a dinner table and a family around it. Virginia Housing makes it possible for thousands across the Commonwealth with our special homeownership programs, including loans, grants, and free classes. Because when we help people buy homes, their communities thrive. Click to learn more about Virginia Housing and see how home helps everyone. All right, and we are back. Um, so, Kellyanne Healy, you recently read the book um, Infinite Baseball, um, which was written by a philosopher and Mets fan um, about sort of the intersection of philosophy and baseball, and it's sort of, you know, little essays and vignettes. Um, so give us a quick, you know, gestalt of how you feel about the book and what, what your thoughts were about it. Oh. Firstly, this book kind of came into my life at quite the perfect time, um, just because I was high on baseball. The Mets weren't quite flailing about as they are right now. Um, but this is kind of an intersection of both like the emotional, um, sentimental side of baseball with the more intellectual, philosophical um, side of it. And these essays are, they cover a sadly finite range of topics um like but they talk about pace of play and just kind of the advanced stats and uh the how we view peds um the social media aspect of baseball and how that's evolved and he is also a Mets fan and so of course he has um Mets perspectives as well which is fantastic I think um and um, some of the essays 
just that really stood out to me. Um, well, firstly, the one on pace of play, because hmm. we know how, uh, how relevant that is nowadays with what um, MLB is trying to do to quote unquote speed up the game, which uh, let's be honest, it's kind of made the game longer in my perspective. Mm-hmm. I don't know what your thoughts are, are on that, but that is my perspective. Um, and then what are some other things that I liked? I'm trying, I'm, I'm paging through the book as I, as I talk, because I have so many little tabs. I should take a picture and send it to you, Allison, so you can post it on your Twitter. Um, <laughs> of all the tabs that are sticking out of your book? Right now, I don't know where to start, because I just, I really loved this book. Um, what, well, what made him a Mets fan? Does he say? I'm sorry? Did he say how he became a Mets fan? Um. Um, I believe he he didn't specify it in the book, but he did talk about it in the um, L.A. Review of Books um, interview that he did. And he became a Mets fan in the early 70s, um, back when the Mets had you know just won the World Series. And um, his fit parents um, were not Mets fans, so he kind of came into it on his own. He made the choice, huh? Choice. It wasn't an inherited fandom. Like my parents, both of my parents were Mets fans. Um, I related a lot to what he said about his like Mets fan origin story because he talked a lot about how the Yankees were associated with sort of like the like (laughs) the like upstate elites and like very corporate (laughs) style of baseball, and the Mets were like you know the team for the real like down and dirty city kids and I was yes. like hell yeah like Mets are blue collar like that's what I you know I I, I so related to that and um, it's still pretty true now too it yeah really it really is and I agree with that because I have I have friends who are very snobby and of course they're Yankees fans oh you can always tell a Yankees fan and she's and it's it's funny because my best friend is a Yankees fan and I love her to death but she is a more casual baseball fan she's like yeah I I don't really follow what's going on with my team right now and I'm just like but it's baseball she probably wouldn't know most of the people that her are in their starting lineup right now unfortunately (laughs) oh my god with how injured they are oh my goodness yeah good lord um but as a as a scientist reading this book, or like looking at the summary of this book, rather, I haven't read it, unfortunately, but I'm going to get to it. Um, but like reading about what this book is all about, um, as a scientist, I found it fascinating because I I kind of like during my like time at Hopkins, I've like delved between two worlds because I am very much a scientist who thinks about things like a scientist. But because I did part of my thesis um, on bio, on a bioethical project, um, I worked with a, a lot of ethicists and philosophers. Um, so I like, you know, got to learn their perspective as well. And I found his discussion of you know, the tension between the, like, analytics um, coming up in baseball and, like, his philosophy mindset and, you know, the parts of baseball that are about philosophy and emotions and, like, feelings as a fan, how that tension works with, like, analytics and always wanting to be logical and facts and, you know, trying to, like, reconcile those two two things. So can you talk a little bit about how in the book he, like, touches on that? Um, well, he, one of the, um, big things he talks about is baseball as a forensic sport. Um, 
and just putting a context to everything. Like when we're so emotional, we kind of choose, uh, we choose to blame a player themselves when it's not necessarily their fault. And I know I've done it. I say, I say things in the moment where I blame a player and it's really not their fault uh, for what's happening on the field. Something else is behind it. Um, so really it's about um, putting a context into each act- action. Like we have RBIs, but an individual player really isn't responsible for an RBI because someone has to be on base to score for the player at bat to get that RBI. Do you want... Um, if that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> and just the, a pitcher error. If a pitcher um, throws a wild pitch, that is his fault. But if a pitcher throws a pitch and the catcher, for whatever reason, doesn't catch it, it's the, it's no longer the pitcher's responsibility, um, that pitch and that error. Um, so really kind of looking at it at a very intellectual perspective and let me see my notes. What did I have written here? Well, I also thought it was interesting, at least in the interview that he, that I read again, the same one that Allison mentioned was that it's kind of like a whodunit, like baseball is a whodunit because we're always looking to assign blame to someone like, oh, why didn't that pitcher make a better pitch or why did the baseball more, why did Frazier swing and just hit a home run, (laughs) which he did, Um, or like, why did they screw up that play? Like we all like, it's, we're always looking to blame someone in baseball and when but that also puts a kind of a human element on it too it does and if i can like just read this like short paragraph from um this is from the essay the forensic sport um and this paragraph is just talking about earned runs and unearned runs and it goes consider runs are either earned or unearned the ball that got away from the catcher and allowed a runner to advance a base it is either a wild pitch and it is the pitcher's fault or it or it is a passed ball, which is the catcher's mistake. Did that runner steal the base or did he, he take it thanks to defensive indifference? Some pitches are strikes and others are balls. That is, some pitches are pitches that the batter ought to be able to hit. He's to blame if he fails to do so. And some are just lousy throws for which the pitcher is liable. So, again, this kind of, a, a lot of it sometimes is, is, very there is a very human subjective element to it and that also ties into a later essay where he talks about umpiring the human umpiring (laughs) how how we always complain how the human umpires uh don't make the right calls and we need robot umps but he made the case that convinced me that we don't need robot umpires which was which is a little surprising i wasn't expecting to feel that way after i read that essay and that essay i can't remember the title of it let me look yeah, that so was what's his argument? Yeah, yeah, that was interesting when because he did he did touch on that briefly in the interview as well. How like baseball is so much more a judgment sport than other sports. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, yeah. he referenced in the rules how um, the word judgment comes up sixty two times in the official rules of Major League Baseball, but for example, in the NBA, it only comes up six times, and in the NFL, or five times in the NBA, and six times in the NFL. So yeah. it's interesting because umpires are given so much more discretion in baseball and we still have we now have you know replay review in baseball which came after the other major sports got replay review but you know 
it's interesting how it's still umpires judging other umpires ultimately. Um, and, you know, it's still imperfect. Um, they don't have the way that they have, I'm thinking about soccer now, the way that they introduce the video replay in soccer, how whether a goal is a goal or not. And they actually have the like, uh, the like technology that shows where the line is and they show where the ball is and you're actually be able like you make a like an objective determination about that. Um, whereas in baseball, it's a lot harder to do things like that. You do have the strike zone that ESPN will show you during the game, the little box, whether a ball is a strike, or, whether a pitch is a strike or a ball. Um, but you can't That's not necessarily the umpire strike zone. Exactly. Yeah. And you can't uh, challenge that. So that's always going to be a judgment call. And I don't know, like, I, like, in heats of passion, when an umpire gets a ball strike call extremely wrong in a key part of the Mets game, I am liable to say, God damn it, we need robot umps. But, like, I don't think I actually mean it. I don't know. I don't don't think I want them. I don't want Well, when I went to Cooperstown, I heard, I think his name was Al Clark. He was a former umpire. Um, he He led a talk. And, um, it, you know, the perfect game came up. Um, who, who was the one who lost the perfect game on the blown call? And somebody asked him about that. And he said a perfect game means literally everything has to be perfect, including the umpiring. So he was like, True. so it was an imperfect game because the umpire wasn't perfect that day. And that's just how it goes, basically. Mm-hmm. And that's the human element in the game. Yeah, and people talk a lot about, you know, how Santana's no-hitter is tainted because of the balloon call on the yeah. on the ball down the line. I, I never felt that way. I never felt like it was no. less of a no-hitter because the umpire blew one call. It's the way the rules were at the time. And it's the way the umpire called it, yep. too. Yeah. yeah, just like the, the perfect game. It's the way the umpire called it. It just it is what it is. And that essay that he discusses that is aptly titled, Nobody's Perfect. (laughs) Nobody's Nerfect. I love that title. title. (laughs) Had to sneak in the Good Place reference, the official show of Amazing Avenue (laughs) Sack. I mean, and I think, I think honestly probably my favorite section of the book was the last section which talked about his like personal baseball memories and kind of talking about the more recent memorable Mets moments like Wilmer Flores crying on the field because Twitter completely dropped the ball on (laughs) him being traded let's just and uh, talking about Matt Harvey too and um, just the magic of the the baseball the baseball field, and um, actually, he introduced something that I had never heard of before. This, which is really cool, uh, something called beep baseball, which is basically um, a, the baseball game adjusted and adapted for those that are visually impaired, which is really cool. So, oh, wow, that is cool. I definitely recommend that essay when you read this book. Um. So. Another thing he talks about, and this is such like a philosopher thing, but it, it did get me thinking, um, is the concept of, and obviously he talks about a lot, a lot about how he loves baseball and that's what unites us all. Like all of us that listen to this podcast, all of us that are talking on this podcast, we all love baseball. Um, and he talks about how is something special because we love it or do we love it because it's special? 
And that's like an interesting question. Like, is baseball just special to us because we love it? Or is it an objectively special thing that we love? And I think he compared it to to Tolstoy. Like, everybody's unhappy in their own way. Like, happy families are all the same, but everybody's unhappy in their own way. So, like, like, if it's different, it makes it special, kind of. Um, I would take the position that it's actually both. There are so many unique aspects to baseball that you don't find in any other sport. I mean, you can talk about how each sport has its own unique aspect, but baseball really seems to have so many quirks that you don't see in other sports, like triple plays or uh, the like really ridiculous plays that you, that are kind of like freak plays that don't usually happen, but the possibility of them happening is there. And, um, but on the flip side, of course it's special because we love it and we make it what it is by showing our emotion and writing all of these wonderful pieces and article, like articles on amazing Avenue are of course my personal favorite, just Mm -hmm. to, just a little bias there. (laughs) Um, But I mean, we've had so many great baseball writings. I mean, just the, the wealth of, of books coming out this year and next year with, we had Ron Darling's new book, 108 stitches. Um, Arch Yamsky's new book, I think is coming out this summer. If it's not out, yes. I'm not a hundred percent sure. Um, and then of course, Anthony DiComo and David Wright's um, book next fall. So, and that's just contained within the Mets world. I mean, we obviously cannot go without, um, Mentioning Roger Angel and um, A. Bartlett Giamatti uh, and their small writings, which are just, I have no words. (laughs) I just have sounds for them because I love love their writing so much. Uh, I wish I was that good of a writer. So, again, I think it's just a bit of both. I think the the sport is objectively special, and I think that we also make it special. So those are my thoughts (laughs) I completely agree Kellyanne and I think that that's a perfect note to end our book review segment on baseball is both objectively special and it's made even more special because we love it um so now we're going to move on to um our segment that we um close out the show with every week that we like to call walk-off wins where each of us talks about what's making us happy this week um so Kellyanne let's start with you what is your walk-off win Oh, my walk-off win is, well, we'll start with the the in-the-moment one that happens right now, and that is that the Mets have taken the lead again. Yay! Yay! It is this game. Um, But my actual planned walk-off win is just um, my story time, kids. I probably have mentioned it within the comments on Amazing Avenue before, but I work in a library. I am a storyteller, and I work with early, um, early childhood And my kids that I work with are just fantastic every week. They make me so happy. Um, They learn so much. They do the songs with me. They share with each other. I can't get over how kind they are to each other at this age. And yes, that's what makes me happy. And that's my walk-off win this week. 
Yay. And I mean, we've mentioned many times on this podcast how Amazing Avenue seems to have a concentration of librarians and people who work in libraries. (laughs) And Kellyanne is one of them. And Linda is also one. So I'm with I'm talking about books with two book nerds right now, which is a blessing. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, So, Linda, what is your walk off win for this week? Okay, my walk-off win is I had to go see Avengers because I was too afraid of spoilers. So I had to go and I had to see it before the whole movie got spoiled. And it was amazing. It was everything I hoped it would be. Um, But there was a point when they played the Captain America theme and I started to cry because it reminded me of David Wright walking off the field. And that song is forever oh, no. ruined now because I can't hear that song without thinking of David Wright walking off the field but as a whole the movie was good and there was oh I can't say too much and it's driving me crazy <laughs> <laughs> but there was like an awesome moment for Captain Marvel that got a good reaction from the crowd but made me very happy because I love that she's badass and um, City Field was shown and yeah I'll just Leave it at that. There was the Mets aren't doing too good. <laughs> no, they no. have been, for lack of a better word, Thanos. Is that how you pronounce that name? I am. I'm not a Marvel junkie yes, or yes, fan. Yes. Or <laughs> yes. Oh boy. Uh, the, yeah, Thanos wasn't kind to the Mets. We'll just put it that way. That's but, unfortunate. Yeah, but yeah, the movie made me happy. Despite, uh, I mean, you will cry. You'll need tissues including if you're a Met fan and if you're emotional about David Wright like I am. But overall, the movie was good and I was happy I saw it. Yeah. No yeah. spoilers. So, no But maybe we will revisit um, Endgame uh, during another walk-off win during another week far in the future when, <laughs> when most reasonable people who would have been mad about spoilers will have seen it already. And then, <laughs> yes. and then, we'll ha- and then Linda, you can revisit it and talk all about the the details Um, okay so my lock-off win for this week um for for those of you who haven't listened to previous episodes of the show um those of you who have do know that um i recently finished my phd at uh, at johns hopkins in human genetics which was a huge accomplishment for me it was five and a half years of hard hard work um but the way it works in my program is that once you defend your thesis which i did in february um you get kind of three months after you defend to officially like hand in your dissertation all your paperwork and like be out the door so for me that deadline is now may 15th um and this week, I officially finished my dissertation. It is done. The entire thing is written. And the, that feeling is my walk-off win for this week because, you know, the act of writing that was, you know, such a labor and it's all of the work that you put in over your entire PhD all in one document and it's blood, sweat, and tears over the past five and a half years in one 140-page document that I wrote and it's, you know, it's, no one's ever going to read it. (laughs) So that's not what motivates me. Um, But looking at it, uh, it's not physically bound yet, but once it is, it will be really nice to have just like that physical representation of everything I put into this over the past five and a half years. So it was really cool to, you know, type that period on the very last sentence of the very last chapter of my dissertation. So that was a really good feeling and a light and a weight off my shoulders. So that is my walk-off win for this week, finishing well, my PhD dissertation. Well, congratulations. It's a lot of work and it's very impressive too. 
Thanks. Yes. I had several Christ drinks. Doctor Viking. Yeah. Sorry, I, that was my, my little musical moment there. I'm a doctor. <laughs> I also I want to read your thesis. Yo, you won't understand you any you of it. I'm just gonna read it. Well, I want to read it. How's that sound? Okay, I will. I will. Gi- I will. I will give it to you. I can't promise that you'll understand all of it because Lord knows anybody outside of my very small field <laughs> won't understand it. Um, but. Yeah, I will definitely pass it along to you if you're interested in reading it. Um, and also, you're leaps and bounds ahead of Cheaty, too. It's true. <laughs> Cheaty will never finish. No, poor Cheaty. <laughs> poor Cheaty. So many good place references. That's two good place references. We're on a roll. Excellent. Um, so That is forking awesome. That is forking awesome. Um, I, sh- I should probably learn to use the, the good place version of cursing more often on these shows yeah. so that they can be family friendly but still feel the satisfaction of cursing at the same time and get a good place reference in along with it win-win situation um, True. so those are our walk-off wins for this week um, before we close out completely I just want to give you guys a quick reminder that we are running a giveaway right now that we first announced during last week's show um, so in order to be eligible for this DeGrom Cy Young bobblehead that Maggie has um, follow a pot of their own on Twitter and tweet us a screen cap of your iTunes review by May 7th next Tuesday for a chance to win the DeGrom Cy Young bobblehead so follow a pot of their own on Twitter Tweet us a screenshot of your iTunes review, and then you will be eligible to win a fantastic DeGrom bobblehead. Hooray! Um, So that uh, does it for the fifth episode of A Pod of Their Own. Um, Please go to AmazonAvenue.com. Um, to read all of our other fantastic content. Uh, we, uh, we mentioned Linda's piece earlier in the show about the Mets catching situation. Um, Maggie Wigan, our other fantastic co-host, who's taking time off this week to celebrate her birthday. Happy birthday, Maggie. Um, she wrote a fantastic piece about Edwin Diaz and how he is everything the Mets traded for. Um, and there is all sorts of other fantastic content, game recaps, etc. Um, so go to AmazingAvenue.com to get all of that. Follow Amazing Avenue on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Amazing Avenue. Follow the show at a pod of their own. You can follow me. I am at Petite PhD. Linda, where are you? At Linda Serovich. And Kellyanne, you can find Kellyanne on Goodreads. <laughs> Kelly- <laughs> Kellyanne, what is your Goodreads like? Do Goodreads even have handles? Where can they, they find you? Handles. It's going to, I guess, be a link tomorrow in the post. Yes. Um, and I don't actually, can, just going backwards for a second, I don't think we actually mentioned the title and the author of the book that I reviewed. It is Infinite Baseball by Alpha Noy. I am hoping I pronounced that last name correctly because he does mention that his last name is quite often mispronounced. So I apologize if it has been mispronounced, but yes. And can that be found on your Goodreads? Yes, it is on my Goodreads. And I will have probably a full review up within the next week or so, I would say. We will link Kelly Ann's Goodreads in the show notes, and we will also link the Goodreads link t- to um, Infinite Baseball and the interview um, for the LA Book Review that we um, that we all read prior to the show. So we will link those things for you guys to get you access to the book, connect you to Kelly Ann on the social media that she has now. <laughs> she ha- she has Twitter, but I'm not telling you what her Twitter is because she's decided to delete Twitter because she's smarter than all of us. Yep. <laughs> 
<laughs> so you can find Gellyanne on Goodreads. You can find Linda and I on Twitter. You can find Amazing Avenue on Twitter. You can find A Pot of Their Own on Twitter. Um, the original um, music for the intro and outro to this show is by Bunga. And let's go Mets. And don't forget, there is no crying in podcasting. Catch you next week. Bye.